I want to begin by uh, saying how uh, difficult it is for me these days to be discouraged. I hope it's very difficult for you to be discouraged. We're living in a most unusual time. God is manifestly at work and you're a part of it. Uh, I was destroyed from about 1969 to 1972 uh, when I was 18, 19, 20. During the Jesus movement, uh, I saw God the Holy Spirit come down and change the subject on the streets of L.A. to Jesus Christ. And it was very mixed and there was a lot of poor thinking involved, but it was a real movement of God. Um, you know, it, it was, but it was more sort of like a power surge. It just came and went. A whole lot of people got converted. Missionaries were sent out churches were started and so forth, but it didn't have longevity built into it. And out of that outflow of tremendous power, and I say destroyed because I just thought, well, this is ministry. You know, this is the drill. This is how Christianity works. Kaboom! Um, then we sort of went into the wilderness for several decades, uh, doing the Lord's work and so forth, but I think we drifted into away from a confidence that the power is in the message into a false confidence that the power is in our methods. In the last 10, 12, 15 years or so, we, the Lord, I think, has been drawing us back to the message with less confidence in our own cleverness. I mean, look what's happened in the last 10 years or so. And the cool thing is, there's no, there was no sort of elite group of Christians who met in a hotel near Chicago O'Hare Airport to plot all this out. Nobody masterminded this, except God himself. The Gospel Coalition started, I don't know, eight years ago or so, and has exploded and is now a strong rallying point for gospel-centered ministry for the rising generation. Together for the gospel is sort of I don't know, those are sort of alter egos to each other, really cooperating, really supportive of each other. Um, uh, Sovereign Grace Ministries is spreading over the country. They've been around longer, actually. Uh, Acts 29 started about 10 years ago. I mean, we're, I'm an Acts 29 pastor. I'm the oldest guy in Acts 29. It's so fun. <laughs> Acts 29, they, they are the bikers of evangelicalism. All tatted out and kind of... Uh, but it's really great because in a place like Nashville, uh, I don't know of another ministry mechanism that is offbeat enough and quirky enough and surprising enough to penetrate the city. So I'm really thankful for X29. Reach Records out of Atlanta. Maybe you're aware of them. Uh, the Rooted Conference. And you are a part of this. This larger growing movement back to the message, less self-confidence, more gospel confidence, and there is nothing but the purpose and blessing of God all over that. He is doing this, 
and he's doing it for a reason. He's got a plan. He's working his plan. Where is this going to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? I wish I were younger. I want to see how this is going to play out. This could become revival of historic magnitude in the 21st century. I think all we have to do is just stay humble, stay low before the Lord and stick together. Don't turn on each other. And stay focused on Jesus and the gospel and the task. And love each other and just keep going, keep going, keep praying, keep digging in. Don't quit, don't quit, never quit. And see what God will do. I'm really grateful you're doing this. You're a part of this remarkable movement that God is rising, or raising up in, in this generation. I hope you're encouraged. I think when we stop and think about it, it's almost as manfully as we might try, it's impossible to be discouraged. All right, let's jump into Romans 8 again. And I'm going to begin at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Now we size up our existence in either of two ways. One way is to see ourselves as Jean-Paul Sartre put it in his play, No Exit. He said, you are your life and nothing else. What does Sartre mean by that? He meant that you are what you make of yourself. You are your choices. You have no excuses, therefore. You can... Uh, uh, you can never let up and take a break because you are all you have to fall back on. Uh, nothing beyond you belongs to you. Your fate is in your own hands entirely. And when you die, that's it. You are your life and nothing else. There is another way for us to see our entire existence, and it starts with this insight. Ultimate reality is the love of a father. Let that thought, that pebble drop into the mental pool 
and let the ripples go out in all directions. Ultimate reality is the love of a father and nothing else. When we press toward what ultimate reality is, we find nothing else but the love of a father. And that starts becoming real to us when we stop trying to prove ourselves because there is more to our lives than us. It starts becoming real to us when the gospel comes alive with a new sense in our hearts that God has made us, made himself our father. So we have failed to prove ourselves if we are our lives and nothing else That's a horrible thought. Because we have failed to prove ourselves. We have no excuses. We have no defense. There is no justification in God's universe for human beings like me and you. We have no place here. But God has given himself to us as our Father in Christ our brother. He gives us the perfect life we haven't lived He gives us the guilty atoning death. We don't want to die. So Sartre said, you are your life and nothing else. God says, you are in Christ and nothing else. So we will see ourselves in either of these two ways, either having to make ourselves and justify ourselves and glorify ourselves, or God adopting us, God justifying us, God glorifying us. Christianity doesn't begin and doesn't continue with our love for God, Christianity begins and continues with God's love for us in Christ. It is about a massive love of God. It is about a surprising love of God. It is about a provident love of God. It's about a sacrificial love and a fatherly love. And what I want to see, want you to see in this section, final section of Romans 8, which is one of the greatest things that's ever been written, is that God loves us personally And God loves us powerfully. This passage reveals that God loves us personally. God loves you. God does not just love the human race, though He does. For God so loved the world. And don't tell me that the world in John 3.16 is the elect only because it later says that whoever believes in Him. God loves the world very tenderly. But God loves you personally and tenderly. And he's holding you in your hands. He enthuses over your future in Christ. So the real meaning of your story, no matter what you've done, no matter what anyone else has done to you, is the love of God for you. And he is making no demands of you except one, that you be willing. That's all he asks. It's all you can provide. That you'd be willing, that you would be open to being massively loved by God. So he asks that you open your heart and cherish his love for you as the very center of a whole new existence. But but God will remove all the obstacles himself. He'll do that for you. And the difference between his intense love for us and our half-hearted love for him, even God forgives that and factors in more grace to offset that 
This passage also reveals that God loves us powerfully. His love is not a weak, pleading love that might or might not work out. If we are in Christ, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. We have offended him. Uh, Many of our sins are so deeply ingrained habits, we're not even aware of them. We sin when we're capable of a better choice. We sin against the clear teaching of Scripture. We sin against the leading of the Holy Spirit and so forth. And not even that stops God because God loves us powerfully. The love of God is a powerful commitment to you. There is no match for this power. Not even in us. And so if we are turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator, with a willingness and a simple openness to being powerfully and personally loved by him, he promises in the gospel to love out of us even our resistance to him and to love into us every grace. Now, what have we seen in Romans 8 up to this point? There is no condemnation against us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. God has adopted us. He tells us about that through the Spirit. God is preparing a whole new universe with a glorious future. And right now, God is bending around to our good everything, everything that happens to us. Because of God, that is the real world we live in. So Paul asks in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, what, what's, what's our takeaway? What is the practical cash value of everything else in Romans 8 up to that point? And then Paul starts asking very hard questions. He isn't protecting this little itty-bitty gospel against these big monster realities. He is unleashing this massive gospel against everything that's against us. And he wants us to think it through. He wants us to pray it through. He wants us to push in our thinking, in our praying, in our assessment of our lives and so forth, so that we get by grace into a settled confidence that God loves us personally and God loves us powerfully forever. Now, inevitably, I believe, and for many of the young people we care for, this has already happened in their lives. But I just have a personal theory that something's coming. You don't have to go looking for it. It'll come find you. But in this world, given human nature, something's coming. And it'll blindside you. And it's hard to get past 50 without some sort of catastrophic, life-altering disaster just grabbing you by the throat. But many of our young people, they're 16, they've already experienced it. But some guy, for example, really intelligent businessman, really good at what he does, builds up a company. It grows and grows. He's doing really well. He's doing it with integrity. He's doing it not for self-glory, but for the glory of God. It grows to the point he needs to pull in other people. He goes to a, a, a guy he trusts who seems like a, a, a savvy businessman and so forth pulls him into the company and that guy finds a way to steal the whole thing out from underneath him and the guy is 55 or 60 and realizes, now I'm I'm restarting my whole life. Or a woman falls in love with a man, trusts him, she could not make herself more vulnerable to him, she marries him and 
They raise children. She thinks it's going really well, and she finds out when she's 45 or 50, he has a girlfriend, he's forsaking her, he is throwing her out, he is humiliating her, he is casting her off. Or, you know, teenage kids breaking their parents, something. But most people, a lot, I shouldn't say that, uh, many people don't have to wait that long. It, just, it's hap- it happens when they're 16. And so they look at the facts, and they have to account for the facts of their life somehow. Something happened in my own life some years ago. And for the first time in my life, it seemed to me that honesty demanded me to ask the question, maybe I've been wrong all along. Maybe the truth is that God hates my guts. Look at the facts. How do I account for the facts? Many of the young people we care for are looking at their lives and they're thinking, look at the facts. How do I account for this? Now, I actually don't know how I changed. I don't know how God filled that blank in for me. Uh, I only know that many mornings, waking up at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, completely exhausted but unable to sleep, there's no point in lying in bed. Get up, make a bunch of coffee, just start reading the Bible. And then drag yourself through the day. And then do it again tomorrow. And then the, the next day. And I don't know how I changed. I only know God must be incredibly faithful. Because when I wasn't sure about him, he was very sure about him. And he just kept loving me. I'm not sure we need to fix people. I'm not sure we need to relieve them of the anguish of their unanswered questions. We want to care for them, listen to them, not reproach them when they're wondering about what reality is, and not rebuke their questions, but listen, 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 be be very patient, and let God prove himself. And just keep loving them, keep reassuring them, and God will be faithful, because God loves personally, and God loves powerfully. And, uh, you know, our justification is not going to be reversed, and our adoption is not going to be revoked. And God's going to prove it. Because God is God. It's just who he is. It's just how he loves. So in verse 30, verses 31 to 39, Paul presses into this ultimate reality of the love of a father that is inevitable, that is inexorable, that is powerful, it is personal, it is saving. He's not going away. <laughs> and Paul asks four questions about it. First question, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Hmm. There's an interesting tone in those words. There's a kind of defiance in those words. There's a kind of um, happiness in those. I don't see any victimhood in those. I can't see any self-pity in those words. If God is for us, who can be now we're not asking the question who can be against us we can think of a lot that's against in some ways we're against ourselves we're so divided and mixed within 
the devil is against us, the world is against us, and so forth. And if we, if, if, if we try to go up against all that, but this time thinking, you know, I, I'm going to get it right this time. Uh, this time I'm going to try harder. This time I'm going to be true to Christ. And so we, if that's our approach, we, we're kidding ourselves. So Paul doesn't ask who's against us. He asks, if God is for us, who is against us? God is not against us. The one explanation for the facts, so to speak, that cannot be true is that God is against us, that God has turned, that God hates us now. God is not watching us with a sort of a, uh, with negative scrutiny, uh, with a gotcha mentality. He's not even neutral about us. He's not waiting to see how things are going to turn out and hoping for the best. God is for us. He is our ally, ultimately our only ally. So we can say to our young people, I hope we do say, why, why, don't, you, why don't you put your name in that verse? If God is for, put your name right in there. And if, if we see that we're disqualified for the love of God, then we're qualified. Heaven is going to be filled with people who are convinced they belong in hell. And hell is going to be filled with people who are convinced they belong in heaven. So we don't deserve God, but to God, that isn't a reason not to love us. It's a reason to love us. This is just who God is. This is how God loves. God is for the undeserving. And so in all that God is doing in the world today, at this moment, God is caring for the undeserving in Christ. God is providing for and forgiving and so forth. And for us to be overlooked by God, for us to fall through the cracks and so forth, and our future in Christ just to go poof somehow, God would have to stop being God. Second question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Why, wh where did God not spare his son? At the cross. What happened at the cross? The father gave him up. The father forsook him. The father abandoned him. When everything was on the line and all our sin was poured out upon the Son who hung there in our place, God did not rescue him. He cried out in pain and God didn't listen. He prayed and God didn't answer. He wasn't saved so that we could be saved. That's what happened at the cross. God did not spare his own Son, but gave him up. Now, here's Paul's question about that. How will God not freely give us all things? Does it stand to reason, having done that 2,000 years ago, that now God is going to start nickel and diming us? Is that how God thinks? Can we convince ourselves of that? So what's the point? The point is, if God gave up his son for us all, then 
there is no limit to the love of God for us. We all wonder, how far will God go with me? At what point will God say, well, I knew you'd be a headache, but I didn't count on this. There is no limit to the love of God because Jesus was abandoned in our place so that we would never be abandoned. So it has nothing to do with our performance or worth. It has everything to do with the cross and what God accomplished in Christ. So we look at the cross compared with ourselves, the disparity, the anomaly of it, the surprise of it, the this totally doesn't make sense-ness of it, and we realize God is rich with love and he must be a big spender. And there is no limit to the love of God for offenders in Christ. So, you know, Uh, God not only does not limit his love for us, God unlimits his love for us. Now, that's not how we love. Uh, we are so weakened that in all our relationships, I mean, there I've really met very few truly unloving people. There's a lot of love in the world, but it's calculating love. It's measured love. That's how we love. That's not how God loves. We're constantly wondering, you know, is this going to take me too far? Am I going to find myself stretched too far in this relationship? What's going to become of this? Will I let this person down? Will I lose face? And so forth. We're, that's how we love. We're deeply weakened. It's not how God loves. God has given us his son. God plans. God has huge plans for you. A magnificent human personality, sparkling, rinsed of all sin, made bright and luminous like Christ, with an amazing resurrected immortal body. Every one of us is going to be a genius. We're going to walk the, that multitude that no one can count bazillion people, every single one of them will like you. You're forever you just get to know these awesome people who really like you. And Jesus will be our brother among us and God will be our father over us. And In a renewed universe where we will romp and play And nothing can keep us from it. Because God planned it. God purchased it. God is accomplishing it. And we're just open. Third question. Verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? <laughs> you know, one of my convictions is that gospel doctrine always creates a gospel culture. It just does. Gospel doctrine, cordially received, creates a gospel culture, a, a gospel ethos, a gospel vibe, a gospel feel, gospel relationships, gospel community. If our churches don't make that connection, we can be ultra-faithful to the gospel doctrine. But if it's not embedded in a gospel culture, we're actually undercutting our preaching. And it doesn't matter how orthodox we might be. And so in a gospel culture, people just have a deep aversion to bringing charges against each other. They would, they'd rather die than do that. Because gospel doctrine says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The implications socially, relationally, emotionally, psychologically are massive. God just changes the subject. And you see the challenge in that. Who shall bring any charge against? What, what business do we have? Accusing. Critiquing. Bringing charges. Is that how God thinks? So, here's how I, I think of how God gets us there. And I'm a child of the 60s, did a degree at Berkeley, blah, 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 all that stuff. I am so, I am the total stereotype. And my precious, I love my wife. I am so massively in love but she will not let me grow a ponytail. <laughs> it's the only reason, y'all. So, I'm back on Telegraph Avenue in 69, and I want to tell you about the fourfold path to spiritual enlightenment. This is how God gets us there. The fourfold path to spiritual enlightenment. First step in the fourfold path is moral indifference. Most people live that way. Uh, life is a playground. The world is a playground. And you make your own rules. Right and wrong don't matter. What matters is winning. Coming out ahead. Now, some people in that place of moral indifference change and go to the second step on the fourfold path. And that is moral concern. They start caring about right and wrong. They start trying to live upright lives. They know that that really matters. And they look back on the people of moral indifference, and they don't like what they see. Now, in many of our churches, uh, there are a lot of folks who don't understand that when you go from moral indifference to moral concern, you have not necessarily become a Christian. That's not the great dividing line. So you've got moral indifference, moral concern. Some people move here. Third step... Uh, is, is moral despair. Some people crash and burn. They discover they're not moral people. Their habits, their passions, their backgrounds, their temptations are too strong with them. Sooner or later they find out virtue isn't as simple as a choice and mere indignation is not necessarily noble and they, they find themselves sinning and they can't stop sinning and they despair. And they're honest enough to say, this is not working. 
Now, fourthly, so moral indifference, moral concern, moral despair, some moral failures, fourthly, uh, find themselves looking beyond themselves and they discover hope in the gospel. Uh, the gospel surprises them. The gospel says that God loves moral failures. Now, this is where they actually cross the line. This is where we become Christians. And God does not condemn or bring charges against moral failures who come to Christ, but God justifies them. He pronounces them righteous in Christ, righteous failures, and because it is God who justifies them, no one can de-justify them. There is no Supreme Court above God to reverse his verdict. It is God who justifies who is to condemn. That's how God gets us there. So this is what the whole world needs to know. The, the people in moral indifference need to wake up and the people of moral concern need to humble themselves and the people of moral despair need to know there is a father on high and uh, the people of hope in the God. I just think they need to have more fun. But we sure don't come to church to sort of airbrush our appearances and merely fine-tune our performance or polish our moral success. We come to church as sinners to comfort our hearts in the finished work of Christ on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit because what God has done, is it's not, he's not going to undo it. So God chose sinners as his elect, verse 33, because God's deepest purpose is to bring fame to his son as a successful savior. The father wants the son to shine as the savior of sinners. So God chooses as his elect, not the good people, but the bad people, so that everybody can see Jesus is a world-class savior. This is very Christ-centered, this gospel. It isn't about our, our faith and repentance ultimately important as they are, but it's about how extreme a Savior Jesus is. Verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's already final between the Father and the Son. Therefore, our, our moral failure still matters, and we can do great harm to others, to ourselves. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. But Paul's whole point here is that God embraces moral failures who turn to Jesus. So, I think we can, as ministers of the gospel, we can say, bring it on. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Fourth and final question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Boy, we all ask that question. And Paul has a sort of an inventory of possible candidates here. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, for starters. Fill in the blank. I mean, when, when you come up with a long list like that in the Bible, there's a good chance that the author's intention is to say, well, let, let me get you going on thinking along this vector and just keep going. So, our nation might be in very great danger right now, economically, for example. 
we might be driving toward that precipice at 60 miles an hour or at 90 miles an hour, depending on how you vote. I don't know. But what? I mean, so what about World War III? Well, the day I die, it might as well be World War III. will be for me. It'll be Armageddon. It'll be the end of the world. It'll be the eschaton. It'll be the end of everything. I'm going to die. When that happens, not if it happens, when it happens for you. And it's probably going to be horrible. Death is humiliating at best. How will you account for that? What does that mean? Do these horrible experiences prove that Christ no longer cares for us? I am so thankful for these verses because these horrible things happen to the people that God loves. Look at verse 36. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul quotes Psalm 44. Look at the imagery, sheep to be slaughtered. Imagine that. What an imagination. Paul's theological imagination. He looks out at the world. What does he see? He sees one vast slaughterhouse. And that is brutal and it's true to life. But in all these things, not some of them, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Uh, Bishop Festo Cavendry is a hero of mine. He was Bishop of Uganda. I think he died in 1988 or 89. He was involved in the East Africa revival which went on for about 30 or 40 years. And um, he... He preached at my church when I was a little kid and um, had this magnificent African-English accent (laughs) with very clipped and distinct words. The English language is beautiful. And in heaven, I might actually learn it. (laughs) Festo Kivendri said, I I read this at dinner last night and I I said, I got to quote this. The cross is not a theory. It is not a doctrine. It is not a sentimental feeling. The cross is practical. It is God moving in love to meet violent men and women, facing violence and suffering for us. Your faith was born in violence. The Christian is not scared when the whole world is shaking. Your faith was born on Calvary. It can stand anything. It's an all-weather faith. And sometimes we do waver and we weep. But God loves us so personally and so powerful to our own surprise. I mean, our faith gets bludgeoned. It's sort of lying there on the ground. It gets hammered. It's bleeding. It's sort of twitching. We think it's down for the count. And to our own surprise, we get up again. We get up again. We trust God again. We find we're inhaling oxygen somehow. We can't even... How do we account for that? That's a fact. It's the love of God. We find ourselves thinking at times, I have no idea 
why that just happened. I mean, I, I've been just totally blindsided. This, this feels like a death sentence. This feels like I am God-forsaken. But the one thing it can't be is the hatred of God. Because God is my Father. And He is for me. And He loves me. And He entered into the suffering Himself through Christ. So, he's got to have a purpose in this somehow. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and get up and make coffee and read the Bible. And the dawn breaks. Because nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. We're not victims. We conquer by trusting in a greater love than we have. So our sufferings are not robbing us. They are reinvesting in us and taking us deeper into the endless love of God. And they always will. All right. Let's go tell the world about that. Huh? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, what we ask is that you would so uh, need this gospel into our hearts that our anxieties are relieved and our resentment is soothed and our pain is moderated and our faith conquers. That is the gift for which we pray. And we ask you to use us to impart that to others. Make us utterly courageous. Do not let us hold back on the magnitude of the gospel. Make us bold so that we speak as we ought to. We ask you to send us back to our places of service replenished, emboldened. We hurl ourselves at you in our need and at you in your greatness. For Jesus' sake, amen.